Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at UH1.com. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you feel like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. When it comes to style and luxury, eBay gets it. They're making sure the things you love are checked by experts. And not just any experts, specialised experts. Real people who love this stuff with real, hands-on authentication experience. So when you see that shiny blue check mark that says authenticity guarantee, shop with confidence. Every inch, stitch, sole and logo is verified authentic through a detailed inspection. That's how you know that eBay's got your back. Because when you finally step into those sneakers, put on that watch, get your real gold glow up, swing that handbag over your shoulder or step out in that streetwear, you'll realise that feeling is unlike any other. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. Hi, this is Imran Ahmed, founder and CEO of The Business of Fashion. Welcome to the BOF Podcast. It's Friday, May 7th. This week, I'm pleased to share a conversation with the author and inspirational speaker, Simon Sinek. Simon is the author of multiple best-selling books, examining how the greatest leaders and organizations think, act, and communicate. I talked to Simon about how these concepts and ideas might be applied within the fashion industry. But first, I asked him what his relationship with the fashion industry is from the outside. To me, fashion, um, the business of fashion, as you said, is like, I, I, like what interests me is, is, is how well it takes care of itself and takes care of the people around them like I'm interested in any industry. I'm not that, I'm pretty agnostic as to what organizations do. I want to know, do you take care of your people? Do you, are, do you take care of your customers? I want to know, do you take care of the environments in which you operate? And I think what's so interesting about fashion as an industry is the way the supply chains work are sometimes even longer, more complicated than than the food industry, for example. And we've seen it happen multiple times where an organization is is trying to be as, as responsible as they can, but it only goes to the point of where the, you know, the fabric is manufactured, but not where it's sourced, for example. So I, I love I love the heightened attention on, on trying to do the right thing and keep supply chains clean, but I'm interested in that in any organization. So it's I, I don't I, it's not about fashion per se, it's about doing the right thing. So you're industry agnostic, but let me tell you a little bit about where our industry is at right now and how I think the fashion industry is feeling after this year of lockdowns, change, and you know, unprecedented shifts in the way we all you know, are living and working. I get the sense that this is an industry that's looking for a renewed sense of purpose. Mm. You know, pre-pandemic, the fashion industry you know, it was growing very quickly. As you said, it's a global industry with global supply chains, but also a global customer base. Fashion's become this big pillar of culture sitting alongside other cultural pillars now that it's opened up and everyone can kind of have a peek inside. But there's been a lot of soul searching over the last 12 months as systemic inequality has been exposed in our supply chains as issues like sustainability and the climate crisis have, have become front of mind, as so many of us have been stuck at home looking at all of the things we own and that we've consumed. And so as an industry, we're looking for a renewed sense of purpose, not just within individual organizations, but also as an industry at large. So you, know, you have this approach 
called the golden circle. And for those those people who are not you know familiar with, maybe you could talk a little bit about the golden circle approach and and you know maybe how you think about how organizations should be thinking about the golden circle in this post-COVID environment where everyone's kind of reevaluating their values and beliefs. Very simply, um, it's a it's a bullseye. Um, in the center, and the bullseye is why, the center ring, the middle ring is how, and the outside ring is what. Um, every single one of us knows what we do. These are the products we make, the services we offer. Some people know how they do it. Um, these are the things that make us stand out or differentiate us from the crowd, for example. But very, very few people and very, very few organizations can clearly articulate why they do what they do. And by why I don't mean to make money, by why I mean, what's your purpose? What's your cause? What's your belief? You know, why does your organization exist? Why does your industry exist? Why do you get out of bed in the morning? And why should anyone care? What I learned is that the best, most inspiring organizations, the most inspiring leaders, every single one of them thinks, acts, and communicates the exact same way. And it's the complete complete opposite to everybody else. Because we all talk about what we do. And we all talk about how we're different. But very few talk about why, why we do what we do, why we actually get out of bed in the morning. You know, when you talk about finding renewed sense of purpose and what COVID did, you know, one of the things that organizations and people and individuals, quite frankly, who have a sense of why, it's, it's a very grounding. It's, it's literally a foundation. Every single person has their own unique why. It's fully formed by the time we're in our probably mid to late teens. And that's it. We are who we are. And the rest of our lives offer us opportunities to make decisions to stay in balance with that cause, stay in balance, sorry, with that purpose uh, or not. It is like the foundation of a house. It, it gives solidity. You know, and the house can go off and do many things and you can change it and you can renovate it. But when there's a solid foundation, everything literally feels grounded. What, what I saw is the organizations and people who, who coped best with the, the trauma of COVID, they had a sense of grounding, something to fall back to. Um, and that's what it does. So when you say the industry has lost sense of sort of why it exists, it, it makes sense that it would be very, very shaken during a crisis like COVID. So in the situation where that foundation is shaken, or indeed in some cases where maybe that foundation, as you pointed out, doesn't even exist because people haven't really reflected organizationally or individually around their sense of purpose, how do you, where does one start to, to kind of get back on that journey to kind of be more clear about purpose yeah. in this post-COVID era? Um, so it's fundamentally an origin story. I mean, that's what a why is. It's from the past. Um, and so when an organization is founded, you know, there was some sort of, there was something that happened where the founder or founders took the overwhelming risk of failure to go and do something themselves, to branch out. And the question is, is what was so important that you would take such a risk to do that? What problem were you trying to solve? What, what cause were you trying to advance? Also, what values do you espouse? A large part of the golden circle is a large part of a why is, is, is what you stand for and what your values are. And great organizations are values-based. And you, know, you can tell when an organization loses its way because it becomes obsessed with output. It becomes obsessed, obsessed with money. It becomes obsessed with you know, arbitrary numbers and arbitrary dates. And they lose sense of their own values. And, and if you're an employee or if you're a customer, you can feel it. Like we, we as employees and we and customers feel it when organizations do that. You know, as an employee, it starts to feel like pressure or stress. Um, uh, it's, we start to feel like the only way we can get ahead is if we hit numbers, but being a good kind person to our fellow employees is not even valued at all. As customers, we can, we can also feel it. Sometimes the quality of our products go down as, as they try and increase profit margins by reducing the quality of ingredients. You know, we see it all the time and we see it in every industry. And it, it's, it's a balance. Money, of course, is important. Money is like fuel. Like what's the point of, of having a car if you can't go anywhere. You can have the most beautiful company, the most beautiful culture, the most, but if you're not making money, it's not going anywhere, it's gonna fall flat. So, but it's the, what, what makes organizations thrive is will and resources, it's money, but also the, the will of the people to wanna to be there and wanna to continue to engage. And this, is, and this is where values and culture and purpose and all of these, these words that are thankfully in the, in the business ver vernacular these days, that's where they help. Absolutely. And so much of that, as you said, comes from the leaders in our organizations yeah. or from the founders. And as a founder myself, I know how challenging it can be to be that leader. But, you know, our industry has, on, from a leadership standpoint, often been driven by a, a culture of yeah. fear. 
a culture of, and I listened to some of your podcasts with Marco Bizzari yeah. recently, and you know, you could really get the sense of that the way Marco was trying to shift the culture at Gucci, removing all the frames of all of the, you know, the legacy mm -hmm. celebrity black and white photos, and really trying to give signals that there was a change coming. But not every leader in the industry is like Marco. Right. You know, there right. are, you know, this has traditionally been an industry where people are driven and motivated for fear of failing or for fear of disappointing yeah. the leader for, you know, how do, how do we as an industry or how do we as leaders shift from a, a, a culture of fear to one that's coming from more of a, a real sense of purpose? Yeah. Well, it's, you know, the, the answer may surprise you on how simple it is, but it's education. It's, 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 you know, we don't teach people how to lead. When someone's junior in their job, we give them tons of training how to do their job. Some people even get degrees and whatever that thing is so that they'll be good at their job. And we let them shadow more experienced people, you know, so that they'll be good at their job. And we give them mentors and all of this training so that they'll be good at their job. And if they're really good at their job, we'll promote them. And eventually we promote them to a position where they're now responsible, responsible for the people who do the job they used to do, but we don't teach them how to do that. And so we just expect yeah. people to know how to lead because they're good at the job that they no longer do, which doesn't even make sense. And in the case of Marco, because you brought him up, Marco is a student of leadership. You know, as senior as he is and as a, and accomplished as he is, he reads books about the subject, he reads articles about the subject, he talks about the subject. He's a student of leadership. He's constantly trying to improve his own ability to lead. And the result is he learned leadership. So he's a very effective and good leader. And in the fashion industry in particular, especially when you're talking about creative minds, uh, if we go down that road, you have somebody who may have a creativity and then they find themselves in a position of leadership through no choice of their own, it's because they're the, the creative genius, we call them. And very often, they're the ones who are afraid. They're afraid of being found out. They're afraid of making mistakes. They're afraid of losing their pedestal. They're afraid of living up to the reputation, whatever it is. And that overwhelming stress often comes out in that, that sort of creative ego that we all, uh, you know, is sort of so storied. But it doesn't have to be. And so one of the things that's so important is that whether they choose that path or whether they find themselves in those positions, it is the responsibility uh, of those individuals and of the organization around them to teach them how to lead. Because quite frankly, it's, it's, it is a learnable, practicable skill. Some get it easier than others. And when you realize that there's people around you who love you and care about you, and that you can make mistakes, and you don't have to be perfect, um, it's amazing how we react, uh, relax. It's worth pointing out uh, Elizabeth Gilbert's work as well. Um, she gave a wonderful TED talk. She mm -hmm. talked about the concept of genius. And back in the pre-Renaissance, genius, a genius, was like a spirit, a daemon that lived in the walls. And if you accomplished something remarkable, people would say of you, you had your genius. She had her genius. So you couldn't take full responsibility for something wonderful you did, because clearly your genius was there to help you. And if you failed, people would say, oh, I guess he didn't have his genius this time. You know? And so you didn't have to beat yourself up because your genius wasn't there. You know, yeah. but so you couldn't you didn't have to beat yourself up, but you couldn't take full full credit either, which is this nice, humbling balance. But something happened in the Renaissance where you went from having your genius to being the genius. And all of a sudden now you had to live up to a mantle, which is frankly impossible. And I think totally. I think the idea of having the genius is is a is a is a is a more humbling and a more appropriate way of thinking about it than being the genius. Yeah. You also talk in some of your work about this concept called the infinite mindset mm -hmm. and how having this kind of mindset versus a finite mindset is really critical for leadership. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about that and how that applies to this, you know, training of a, a you know, providing training to new leaders so that they can change literally the way they think? Yeah in order to be good leaders. Absolutely, this goes back to the work of Dr. James Carse, who in the mid 1980s articulated these two types of games, finite games and infinite games. A finite game is defined as known, known players, fixed rules, and an agreed upon objective, football. There's always a beginning, middle, and an end. And if there's a winner, necessarily there has to be a loser, right? Then you have infinite games. Infinite games are defined as known and unknown players, which means new players can join the game whenever they want. Uh, the rules are changeable, which means every player can play however they want. And the objective is to perpetuate the game, to stay in the game as long as possible. 
We are players in infinite games every day of our lives, whether we know it or not. There's no such thing as winning global politics. There's no such thing as being number one in your relationship. You can't do that. You can be number two, but you can't be number one. Um, uh, there's no such thing as winning education. You can come in first for the finite amount of time you're at school because we agree upon what the metrics are. They're called grades, but you don't win education. Nobody wins career. You're not declared the winner of careers. And there's definitely no such thing as winning business. Um, they're all infinite games. But if you listen to the language of so many people, it becomes abundantly clear that they don't know the game they're in. They talk about being number one, being the best or beating their competition. Based on what? Based upon what agreed upon timeframes, metrics, or objectives. And this is a big problem because when we play with a finite mindset in an infinite game, when we play to win or be the best or be number one in a game that has no finish line, there are some very predictable and consistent outcomes. The big ones include the decline of trust, the decline of cooperation, and the decline of innovation. And we can see this all over the place. Like you see organizations that are so obsessed with winning and being number one, even though that's impossible in the infinite game of business, that you start to see over time, they may do okay for the short period, but you start to see over the course of time that the trust and culture inside the organization erode. You start to see innovation erode because people don't want to take risks. So they don't trust each other. Where organizations that tend to have this more infinite mindset where they're trying to advance something bigger than themselves um, tend to outperform it across the board and people love working there. So it's essential that we pay attention to the game that we're in and we play by the standards of that game. And that includes uh, adjusting to the infinite mindset when we're playing in an infinite game, which unfortunately a lot of people don't do. How does having a finite or infinite mindset impact culture? So say a leader is operating with a finite mindset. They're all about winning. They're all about you know, being number yeah. one. How does that kind of mindset in a, in a leader trickle down to the way employees and team members in a company feel and work? So in organizations where there's an imbalance of finite mindset, now let's, let's just, as a quick aside, the infinite game is not the absence of finite games. It's the context within which finite games exist. So for example, if you're trying to win a piece of business, you know, you're trying to uh, uh, get a job or, 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 That's or finite. Win, win a client. That's finite. There's a beginning, middle, and end. Yeah. We all agree yeah. what the date is when the decision will be made. We all agree what the metrics are. And there will be someone who gets it and there will be somebody who doesn't get it. But then it's over. The question is, to what end? Like, what is that hoping to advance? And so many of the finite games we play are arbitrary. So, for example, a company will articulate an arbitrary number, a goal, a financial goal, and an arbitrary date. We want to hit this number by this date. Well, they literally made up that number. And usually the date happens annually because that's when we pay taxes. There's no other reason. It's when we close the books. All the pressures and incentive structures are put on everybody to hit that arbitrary number and that arbitrary date. And we pay no attention to how our people are treating each other or treating the customer. When there's an imbalance and an obsession with the finite uh, game in an infinite game, it can lead to something called ethical fading, which is a fascinating condition in which people make unethical decisions, believing that they're well within their own ethical framework. So extreme examples of ethical fading, for example, would be um, like in a pharmaceutical company that happens to own a patent on an essential drug. And because they own the patent, they decide to raise the price 300%, 500%, 800%, 1,000%, 1,500%. There's nothing illegal about that, but it's really unethical, right? When they get dragged in front of the press or dragged in front of some sort of hearing, they all say the same thing. We broke no law. No, we didn't say that. And the law is a much lower standard than ethics, but that's the standard defense. Or they start to sort of do things like putting in sort of dangerous chemicals or using unhealthy business practices because it increases their, their profit margins. Mind you, met very often, they're still profitable doing it the, the, the healthier way, but not as profitable as they would like to be because they have these arbitrary numbers they're trying to hit. And I get my bonus when I hit the number. And so when, we, when, when, when the finite mindset gets too imbalanced and goes unchecked, it can lead to some pretty awful behavior. And if, you, if you've ever been unlucky enough to work in a company that is suffering ethical fading, the pressure is overwhelming on us to do the wrong thing. And sometimes right. we, we actually are part of it. And we, this yeah. is part of ethical fading. We rationalize. Everyone's doing it. It's what I need to do to get ahead. It's what my boss wants. 
it's the system. I had no choice. Got to put food on the table, right? Or, 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 you know, it's the industry standard, which is complete nonsense. But these are, these are the lies we tell ourselves to make us feel better that we're not being unethical. What does that mean about the way we should set goals though, right? So, cause companies still need yeah. goals to work towards. Absolutely. And what you're saying is sometimes we set goals that have undesirable impact on our behavior of how we achieve those goals. So how should we set goals? Cause companies can't operate. No, yeah, yeah. It's a perfectly legitimate question and it's a perfectly good question. And the answer is context, right? <clears throat> Think of it more like exercise. You know, like I said, we overuse sports analogies or war analogies in business, which are generally finite, right? But think of it more like, think of it more like health. Like you want to be healthy. So you have a vision of what, what healthy looks like, which is like a company that has a, a vision of something they're trying to achieve that for all practical purposes, they'll never get there, right? And you set arbitrary goals. I want to lose X amount of weight by X date. That's just like a financial goal. We, I just made it up right? I would like to be this weight by this date. And I do all the things I need to do. I'm exercising and eating right and getting enough sleep. And I love looking at the scale every morning. We love metrics. Metrics are good. There's nothing wrong with counting. It makes us feel like we're making progress. It would, you would never want to run in a marathon without mile markers. It's actually unnerving. We need metrics because they are measures of speed and distance. How far have we gone and how fast are we going? but they're not the end all be all. They don't tell us the end of the game in the infinite game. And if you hit your goal, if you hit your financial goal, or if you hit lose the right amount of weight by the right date, you're ecstatic and you're over the moon and you're happy and you're celebrating, but you have to keep exercising for the rest of your life. It's not over. And it's the same in business, which is building a good team and, and, and working to, and building based on our ethics and our values to hit a certain goal is great, but you have to keep doing that forever, right? You can't just, you know, lie, cheat and steal to hit the number or have a promotion at the end of the year so you can drive the numbers and hit the goal because that's unsustainable. That's the problem. Many of the things that we do to hit our goals when we're obsessed with the finite are unsustainable. Um, but let's take the, the, the other scenario. What happens if you miss your goal? What happens if you don't lose the right amount of weight by the right date? Do you know what happens? Nothing. Nothing happens. In fact, you're way healthier now than you were when you started, and you just got the date wrong. If you continue with your regime, you'll absolutely lose that weight in the next month. And it's the same in business. The numbers we choose are arbitrary. So what's really important is not just the absolute number, whether we hit it or not, it's how we get there. If there's one team where morale is low, people are getting fired all the time, people are quitting all the time, where the stress is high, and some, you, know, you look at their performance, it's up and down and up and down and up and down. And at the last minute, as we said before, they happen to hit the numbers. We celebrate that team and we celebrate that leader, but look how they got there. Look how many people they had to hurt or things that they did to get to that goal. That's not sustainable, nor is it healthy. But there might be another team with good, steady growth Morale is great. Nobody quits. No one gets fired. They care about each other. And they, at the end of the year, they miss their goal. They don't hit the arbitrary goal that was set for them. We don't give that team anything. We don't celebrate them. So the point of it is, yes, have goals. Absolutely. Yes, hit those targets. Absolutely. But consider the trend. Consider how you're getting there. The trend data really matters because if we pull back and say, well, they've got a great team. Clearly, they're going to hit the goal we set for them in 14 months instead of 12. That's great because they're doing it in a healthy, sustainable way. And so I think we right. have to pay more attention to the trend and how we achieve our goals, not just that we achieve our goals. That's the correct balance. But there's nothing wrong with setting goals and setting uh, ambitions and encouraging people to do it. It's about the balance. Got it. All right. The other thing that came up a lot, there's this kind of disconnect between the image that fashion as an industry projects yeah. and the reality of what it's like to work yeah. in fashion in some cases. Yeah. Some people describe the industry as being toxic, you know, in its worst incarnations. Mm -hmm. How do you think about reconciling these like shiny, aspirational, glamorous brands yeah. with yeah. internal cultures that don't necessarily match up to that? Yeah in an era where there's more and more transparency about how companies are run and how, how leaders are held accountable. Yeah. So clearly 
ideally we want an organization that internally and externally, there's a similar feeling, right? And by the way, there's no such thing as a perfect job and jobs are stressful. And some days we love our jobs and sometimes we, we hate our jobs. Like we love our children every day. We don't necessarily like them every day. Work is the same. You can love your job without liking it every day, right? So let's be clear. There's no such thing as like, it's like unicorns and rainbows every day. Sometimes it's hard work, but you at least want to know that that's a supportive environment, that the organization's brand internally and externally are consistent. The things they're saying externally that they say they believe in what their values are reflected internally and well. That's, that's very important. I think one of the big opportunities in fashion and in a lot of industries is we spend so much time focusing on the companies that are doing it wrong and beating them up that we're ignoring the companies that are actually doing it right and modeling them. Right? It's kind of like positive psychology. There's this movement for positive psychology. Almost the entire discipline of psychology focuses on what's wrong with us and trying to fix us. Right, But the point is it puts all the spotlight on broken people and broken things and makes us all feel broken. Positive psychology is the opposite. We're looking at people who are happy, who are doing it right, and making and it's pointing at those and say, let's instead of trying to fix broken, let's try and emulate healthy. And by the way, let's point out some things about you that are going really well. So we actually feel good about ourselves. And I think we need to talk more about the companies and the leaders that are getting it right, which puts, by the way, excessive pressure on the companies that are doing it wrong. Because I think, in, and this goes across all industries, which is we're putting so much pressure and anger against the ones that get wrong that we're actually ignoring how to get things right and learning the lessons. We should be celebrating leaders like Marco Bazzari and talking about what Gucci's doing right and what Gucci is, is, and by the way, there is no perfect organization. The point is it's a striving, like being healthy. Like I'm supposed to eat right, exercise, get enough sleep, nurse my friendships, be mindful, all the list. Of, I, I don't do it well every day. It's a striving, right? That's what the infinite mindset is. It's about constant improvement. Let's obsess about the organizations that are constantly improving rather than the ones that are constantly playing defense and only responding to pressure. I think we can do that in business. Let's focus on what's working and emulate. And I think it'll have the same kind of positive impact like positive psychology does. We had a lot of questions come through from younger members of our community who are working in organizations. And one of the questions I thought was really poignant. And they asked, you know, do you believe culture can be changed from any position in the organization, even if the owner, as this person has put it, is a horrible leader? You know, if you're if you're a cog yeah. in a bigger wheel, yeah. what what role can the individual play in reshaping the organization? If even if they don't hold a position of power, sure. So the answer is absolutely. Um, leadership has nothing to do with rank. We all know people at very senior ranks of organizations. They may they be they may be the most senior people in the organizations who are not leaders. We do as they tell us because they have authority over us because their position but we don't trust them and we would never follow them. And we all know people within an organization with no formal rank and no formal authority, but they've made a choice to look after the person to the left of them and look after the person to the right of them. And we would trust them and follow them anywhere. Every single one of us has the capacity to be the leader we wish we had. Leadership is nothing to do with rank. It is the responsibility to see those around us rise. If you happen to be a good leader in a position of authority, it means you can lead at greater scale. But absolutely, it might be more efficient to come from the top, but absolutely it can come from anywhere in the organization. And so if you have the infinite mindset, we're not trying to change the organization's culture this year. We understand that it's a, it's a journey. Like when I'm saying I'm gonna get into shape, you see me using this analogy again, I can't tell you exactly when I'm gonna get into shape. It might take a month, it might take three months, it might take six months and it's different for everybody. It's the same here. We set ourselves on a journey and we do the process. Like if you work out every single day for 20 minutes, 100% of people are, it's, you're going to get into shape. It's 100% it works. I just don't know when. And it's the same thing for leadership. So yes, every single one of us can choose to be the leader we wish we had, to take care of the people to the left of us, to the right of us, even sometimes our boss. Having empathy doesn't have to go sideways and down. It can also go up. If our boss comes to work and they're particularly difficult or curmudgeonly in a meeting, instead of labeling them an asshole, which may be the case, by the way, we can, we can consider that they're under overwhelming stress that we don't understand, just like we want them yeah. to do the same for us. They're also human yeah. beings. And to go into their office and say, are you okay? You were really hard on us in the meeting today. That's called good leadership. Part of being a good leader is seeing the people around us as human beings and understand that they have stresses and strains that might better explain their behaviors. 
Yes, sometimes they're assholes, but that's not always the case. Just like we can sometimes be assholes, but because we're under stress and we want people to be patient with us. So yes, you can change a culture from within. It's a little slower, um, obviously, but it does create a momentum because the people who you're taking care of because you're being a student of leadership, they then move on to another group or get promoted out and they bring the lessons they learn from you and they do it for their groups. And those people learn those lessons and they get promoted. And before you know it, you've changed the whole organization despite the most senior people. So absolutely it's doable and I've seen it happen. It's Mom deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Have you ever owned something that inspired you to up your game? For me, I got a chef grade range recently, and now I'm cooking new things every single night. Seriously, no cuisine is off limits. The point is, when we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. I can picture myself with a car full of groceries, cruising down the highway, soaking up the sun with the available dynamic sky panorama glass roof. Ah, pure bliss. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX. Luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewelry that makes you feel like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. When it comes to style and luxury, eBay gets it. They're making sure the things you love are checked by experts. And not just any experts, specialized experts. Real people who love this stuff with real hands-on authentication experience. So when you see that shiny blue check mark that says authenticity guarantee, shop with confidence. Every inch, stitch, sole and logo is verified authentic through a detailed inspection. That's how you know that eBay's got your back. Because when you finally step into those sneakers, put on that watch, get your real gold glow up, swing that handbag over your shoulder, or step out in that streetwear, you'll realize that feeling is unlike any other. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. Remarkable. It sounds to me like the core element to that is empathy in organizations. Yes, empathy matters. You know, understanding that if you're a junior employee and your your leader might be as you said curmudgeonly, it's not necessarily because they're a bad person. They just they might not have been open with you about what they're going through. So like how do we how do we bring out more humanity in our organizations? I found during COVID actually people in my team are being much more open about what's going on and it just helps us to understand that everyone has their own stuff that they're dealing with all the time. And we've created such boundaries between personal and professional space sometimes that limits our ability to understand what our colleagues might be going through. It it goes to this ridiculous notion of work-life balance, right? Things that are in balance are on opposite sides of a scale. They're opposing forces. And what a horrible thing to think that our work and our personal lives are in opposition, that we seek to find balance. It's, they're just elements of our lives. It's just yeah. things that are reflective of who we are. It's not about balance per se, uh, as we think about it. Like no amount of yoga is going gonna, is gonna to make you create work-life balance for you. Like that's not what's going to happen. And so uh, one of the silver linings in the cloud of COVID, as you said, was we started to see people as people, right? We, first of all, we saw their homes in, in the Zoom call. I'm looking at you in your home, right? As opposed to an office. 
We saw their kids run through, run through. We didn't even know that they had kids. And we all became just a little more patient. You know, when somebody couldn't make a call, they got distracted because the kid was screaming. Like we were sort of smiled, nobody got angry. And yet, can you yeah. imagine, you know, if you're on a conference call and somebody got distracted, we'd be like, why weren't you, you know, like, like we, we started to see people as human. It's one of, the, one of the good things that came out of COVID. And I think we all did relax and we did call each other and say, are you okay? Don't worry. I understand. We can we consider that maybe there's other stresses going on in their lives. They're sick. Their family's sick. Their kids are home from school. Like we considered all of these things when we looked at their their work product. And if their performance went down, we didn't immediately assume that they were stupid or lazy. We assumed that something was going on. And that mm-hmm. empathy muscle really got exercised for a lot of us, which was great. And I hope it survives COVID. But we have to teach it. We have to talk about it. And we have to recognize and reward it. And that goes back to the balancing of those incentive structures. If we're only incentivizing people if they hit the numbers, then guess what we're going to get? Behaviors that encourage that. But that doesn't last. It's an unsustainable model. We also need to include, this is where balancing comes, incentives that also recognize and reward people who are those good leaders, who are taking care of the people around them. Um, You know, we don't talk about trust inside organizations. We don't talk about kindness. And I'm not talking about like everybody should go around kumbaya, nobody does any work. Like that's a hippie commune. That doesn't get anything done. We're talking about productive organizations with a healthy culture and a desire for accountability and a desire for moving the needle. We want to produce fuel to, to, for the cause because we have big ideas of where we can take this organization, but we're going to treat each other right along the way. And I think those are the balances. You know, we think of these things as like pendulums and that they're not, um, you know, unfortunately, so much of the discussion we have about all of these subjects now are very stark. They're black and white. It's right and wrong. It's good and bad, but that's not really how things work. It's, 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 it's really very gray on how this stuff, think about relationships compared to any interpersonal relationship, friendship or romantic relationship. It's not like if I do these these seven things, then he'll fall in love with me. That's not really how it works. It's messy. It's human. It's a dance. It's gray. You know, it's affected by mood and food and sleep and what happened at work and what happened somewhere else or the weather. And sometimes I get it right and sometimes I get it wrong and sometimes I'm present and sometimes I'm not. And it's it's this dance that these people that people do. But when both parties are committed to making it work, it works. And it's the same at work, you know? It's, it's, it's messy, it's human, it's cooperative, it's relationships, it's egos and insecurities, it's all the things. But if we work in a healthy organization, what we feel is that we can be ourselves. What we feel is that I'm in an organization and an environment that is supportive, that if I get it wrong, somebody will default to, are you okay, not what's wrong with you? And we can still, all those things that people, you know, uh, question, well, if you have this, focus on positive, or what about accountability? We're not removing those things. We're creating a a, a nice environment where those things are more open because you can push accountability on people or in a healthy environment, people want to take accountability or feel awful because they let their team down, which is the best kind of accountability, right? Which is I don't wanna let the people who love me and care about me down. That's the best kind of accountability when it's cooperative, right? Um, Where we feel a part of a system. And I think this opens up sort of the bigger question, which is how are we operating as a society? You know, we've over-indexed on rugged individualism that I have to be responsible for my career and I want to be the best and I want to grow and I'm going to achieve this and I'm going to become a millionaire and I'm going to become famous and all of these me, 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 me. You know, there's an entire section in the bookshop called self-help and there's no section in the bookshop called help others. And the last time I checked, none of us could survive or thrive without the help of other people. None of us. No one is singularly responsible for their own success. We can be singularly responsible for our own failure, but no one can be singularly responsible for their own success. There's somebody who believed in us, took a risk on us, gave us a break, said you can do it, helped us out, was there late at night when we were struggling. Every single one of us, our success is, was, was a team. And I think that we have to remember that community and fostering community and taking care of people around us and learning how to take care of others, it is a skill. Listening is a skill. Empathy is a skill. Learning how to give and receive feedback is a skill. Learning how to have a difficult conversation is a skill. It's very easy to simply go online or start screaming and yelling and start demanding, right? But it's very hard to go and say to somebody, 
can I have a difficult conversation with you about something that happened today? And that's actually more likely to build the kind of cooperation and relationship that builds for healthy relationships and healthy, healthy cultures. And it's this, again, compare it to your interpersonal relationship. You know, if you have a fight with your boyfriend or your girlfriend, you can ghost them. That's one option, which is traumatic for the person that you're ghosting and it's conflict avoidant. You can go on social media and criticize them before they even know what's going on. Or you can find the skills, learn the skills to say, can I have a really difficult conversation about something that makes me really uncomfortable? And I don't know how to say this right, but I know I have to have the conversation with you because it really matters to both of us. We don't yeah. teach that skill. And I think we yeah. need to do a better job of, of recognizing the, our responsibility in, in the collective, in the community. Another skill which you talk about in your work is resilience. And, you know, it's been something that's been front of mind this year as we've all had to kind of cope with this situation. You know, I asked a question earlier from a young person about how they could be a leader in an organization. Now I have a question from an older person who is asking questions about the resilience of the younger generations. Yeah. And the question is, do you think younger generations are less resilient. Someone else asked, how can I teach resiliency to the younger workforce? Yeah. I I think that for multiple reasons, which we could delve into if you like, um, for multiple reasons, the younger generations definitely seem to lack some of the skills required to cope with stress. And we see this. We see increasing rates of depression and anxiety from younger younger generations. Um, and in extreme cases, we see increasing rates of, of young people dying by suicide. Um, but, but, but depression and anxiety are, are obviously more common and, and easier to hide as well, especially in a, in a generation that's really good at curating their lives and, and showing how, how they want to be seen. And again, you know, it comes from multiple things. There's many, much has been written about the generation of parents that overcuddled. It's one thing when a parent calls the school to complain, why didn't my kid get an A? But we hear plenty of examples of parents calling companies and say, why didn't my kid get the promotion? Like your kid's 26 years old and your mom's calling to demand why you got it, didn't get like, like, like your kid's not learning resilience if you keep solving all the problems, right? If you keep swooping in and don't put them in any situations where they can scrape a knee and then have to learn to get back up, even if they scrape a knee again, you know, and, and, and I understand it. It, it. The theory is that it comes from this generation of parents that watched the Twin Towers come down on September 11th and the increase of th- that kind of uh, terrorism around us, which is those fear, which is I want to protect my children at all costs. It comes at a cost. Um, also, the overuse and the addictive qualities of social media and our cell phones means that in times of stress and anxiety, we turn to the device, the number of likes that we get to make us feel better about ourselves, or in pain, we broadcast, we literally broadcast our pain, which, by the way, doesn't, doesn't alleviate the pain. It's like, um, it's like taking a pill because then, then, then a bunch of strangers say, you're okay, you're fine, you're great, you're wonderful, me too. You're like, and for that brief moment, it's, it's, it's like you, you, you took an Advil. What's much more difficult and much more powerful is to call somebody you love and say, I'm hurting. I am not good. And I do not know how to solve my problem. Can you help me? I mean, even talking about it, that's hard. It's easier to broadcast, but, it, and, and, and that's not vulnerability. Broadcast, Brene Brown talks about this a lot. You know, broadcast yeah. is not vulnerability. A vulnerability is putting yourself in, in that situation with someone and allowing them and hoping that they'll be there to protect you. And again, this young generation hasn't learned those skills, even dating. I mean, like there's silly things that have contributed to this, which is, you know, online or app dating is so, it's such a thing now that to get a date, you just swipe right, you know, and people can talk about how great it's great for introverts, et cetera, et cetera. Sure. Great. But it's, but think about an entire generation is growing up where fewer and fewer of them have learned the skill of going up to a stranger or even somebody they know and saying, will you go out with me? and being rejected and then having to be humiliated and then muster up the courage to do it again and again. Or, yeah. you know, and, and, it's, and that, that's actually a really important skill that we're not learning because we don't wanna be humiliated so we can just avoid the whole situation right, right out. So yes, I think this young generation can. So what do we, what do, we do as leaders then, Simon, yeah. when there's younger generations in our companies who, who may not have developed these skills, right. but they need resilience right. to thrive 
in a working environment because everything's not always going to be easy. Right. So complaining and blaming them doesn't doesn't help. You millennials, you know, that that doesn't do anything, right? And as much as leaders want to complain about it, they didn't learn it at home. They didn't learn at school. Responsibility is yours. You know, companies have to pick up the slack. So number one, it starts with, with listening, which is to create environments in which they can feel heard, which is to create safe spaces for them to get it out of their system, to, to, to tell how they feel, where they can feel seen and heard and understood. And you have to get to that space first. And then you can start to, to teach skills. Um, for one, you know, companies have a lot of advantages. We can make kind of draconian rules like no cell phones in conference rooms. You can make that rule, right? That you can't just wait for the meeting to start by being on your phone. We can make rules like we go for business lunches. We, we go for lunch as a team every Friday and no one's allowed to bring their cell phone. We can make that rule, right? So what we're starting to do is wean people off the addictive device. And they're starting to see how much they like it. You know, we can have open conversations about strategies if you're interested. Like you can't force people to do it, right? But like any 12-step program, the first step is admitting you have a problem, right? If you feel like you struggle with stress, if you feel like you struggle with anxiety, if you feel that you, 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 you could learn more grit, come and take these classes, come and, come and talk about it. Let's share strategies. And so it's kind of like anything. It's, it's kind of like good parenting, which is the company can create systems and classes and sometimes some draconian rules in the culture of the organization, if we ever go back to work, that will help. But I think the most important thing is talking about it and giving a safe space for, for young people to talk about it and then giving them this, the opportunity to learn those skills. I wanted to turn to the future a bit. You know, we are still in the middle of a pandemic. Yeah. Things are slowly improving in certain parts of the world. In other parts of the world, they're getting worse. Yeah. But at some point, hopefully we'll be through this period and the world will open up again. Yeah. You know, what are your thoughts on leadership in the post COVID world? I mean, what do you want to see in the world? And what are the lessons and learnings that you've taken away from this period? Well, we sort of touched upon this before, which was when COVID showed up, a lot of leaders, whether they were effective or ineffective prior to COVID, sort of just leaned on their humanity, that they picked up the phone and asked their team one by one, how are you? You okay? Well, that's just called good leadership. Um, and I hope that that survives COVID, that it's not just in crisis that we do that, um, that we start to consider uh, the stresses and strains that someone is under and we express concern and empathy rather than um, judgment. So, you know, a lot of people actually, because we're human beings and that's how human beings are, in crisis, we're there for each other and our politics disappear and all of that. Like if there's a natural disaster, communities come together and all of that nonsense that we were fighting about two days ago just disappears. Um, the problem is it comes back. And so I think like anything, we have to be active about it. It's, it we, if we're passive about it, we'll, we'll always default to the easier because all the stuff we're talking about requires effort. All the stuff we're talking about requires work. All the stuff we're talking about requires vulnerability. And so I, I hope that some of those skills remain and, and that we can talk about them. And, and the nice thing is we now have references. It's, it's not just, you know, idiots like me writing books about like, you, we should do these things, but rather we can say, hey, do you remember during COVID when somebody called you? Like, do you remember how good that felt? Or you remember when you just did it naturally, you were worried about your, the folks on your team and you just picked up the phone and called them? Do you remember that? Like, we now have these references, which is great. So I hope that survives. That's, that's a really big one. What are your thoughts on this hybrid working model that everyone's espousing, or a lot of people are espousing, you know, people at Goldman Sachs and some of the investment banks seem to be against it because they feel it might impact apprenticeship culture and really nurturing and growing leaders. As we, as we head to this new working model, I mean, we're all working at home right now, but eventually there'll be this, there'll be this hybrid be, model. Yeah. How are yeah. you thinking about that? So I, look, again, it's a pendulum, right? We were all in the office. Now we're not in the office and people, and there are some who are saying we all have to go back to the office and some are saying, no, we should all stay away from the office. The answer is no, it's somewhere in the middle. It's gray, right? And, and there are, there's no right way to do it. Some organizations will say two days a week, everybody has to be in the office because we need to have team meetings, et cetera. Some companies will say, come and go as you please. It's flex. 
but we, we, you know, we'd like you to come in for meetings and stuff like that. I actually think that, that one of the good things that'll come out about this, I think we'll see a more flexible model because we got comfortable. We, got, we've, we discovered that we can actually operate remotely and things like technologies like Zoom, which is so much better than conference, you know, that polycom conference call system, which is the worst. We got comfortable with it. And so where it used to be a case of like, my kid's going to be home from school next Thursday. Can I work from home? Ask permission, ask permission. Now it'll become, hey, my kid's home today. I'm going to work from home today. You know, it'll just become more flexible and easy. I also think that it's, this is a great thing for introverts. The office culture favors the extrovert, the person who comes in and is like, you know, friendly with everyone and likes being in meetings and extroverts thrive in that culture and introverts have to work very hard and it's very exhausting in that culture. They can do it, but it's just really exhausting at the end of the day. And so I think what this does, this actually allows a beautiful diverse team of different people, including extroverts and introverts to find an environment where they can work at their natural best where sometimes the extroverts will work online, which they don't like. And sometimes the introverts will have to come in because that's necessary and that's good for building relationships. But also that we, you can create space where you can work at your natural best. So if I'm an introvert, I can stay home today because I just got to get a lot done and I just, I just want to be alone and get it done. That's wonderful. I think by allowing that flexibility, we'll actually see innovation and productivity thrive because we're, we're allowing people to work at their natural best. One last question for you. Which is the other thing that, you know, we've been grappling with as an industry, but I think the whole world is grappling with is the looming climate crisis. So we've been in the, in the middle of this pandemic, which has obviously stopped everyone in their tracks, try to focus on literally on survival, both as individuals and as companies yeah. and as, yeah. as societies. As we, as we head back into so-called normal life, yeah. We have this other crisis that we're kind of dealing with and you consumption oriented industries like fashion have a role to play in minimizing the impact of our activities. But at the same time, our industry is driven by growth and getting people to want more. And, you know, how do businesses balance the somewhat conflicting purposes of saving the planet? and serving the customer with new products in this period that's going to follow after the lockdowns are well and truly over? Well, it's about doing in things you actually, doing and saying and doing the things you actually believe, right? Like, like it, it, it is true that your actions do reflect your beliefs. So you can say one thing, but if all of your actions are about profit, 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 growth, 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 well, then did you really believe it? And again, I'll go back to what we said before, which is let's Let's find the companies that are better than most, that better than others and emulate them. Patagonia is a remarkable example, right? They make high-end clothing and they literally say, please don't buy our clothing unless you really need it. Like that's insane for a company to say, as opposed to buy it, buy it, buy it, you need it, you need it. And they have these incredible programs where um, if you want it repaired, they'll repair it. If you decide you don't want it, they have an aftermarket where you can resell it. And if it's completely been destroyed, they have a whole system where you return it to them and they will recycle it. Um, and they're trying to make that garment last as long as possible and by creating the aftermarket and whatnot. Now, does that cost them money? Absolutely. Even their ability to go deeper into the supply chain, right to the source to ensure that it reflects their values. Does that cost them money? Yep. Do they sometimes have to pay a premium? Yep. Does it, and, but, but if you look at their performance, it's gangbusters because they have a fiercely loyal clientele. The employees who work there are proud to work there and they're super innovative in finding new ways to help Patagonia advance its cause. So we, we should emulate companies that do it right because they know how to do it. Now, can we all do it as well as they can? Probably not, but we can start trying. Again, it's like being healthy. I have to exercise, I have to eat right. To, well, you don't have to do it all at the same time. Just start somewhere. It's a journey and we need to make steady improvement, constant improvement. And I think that's more palpable for a lot of companies to, to make the improvements. And, and if we start all moving in the right direction, hopefully a little, you know, we've, we've wasted a lot of time. So now we have to work a little ha- hard and a little faster. That's on us. I hate to say it, but it's a very human thing. Like how many people have a savings account and how many people are disciplined about taking a little bit of money every paycheck and putting in their savings account? We all know we have to save. Everybody tells us you need to save for a rainy day. And yet how many of yeah. us are actually good at saving for the long term? Or do we spend our money because we like instant gratification? Well, guess what? It's the same in business. They like instant gratification too. And heading off climate change, well, it's so far away, you know? 
And then guess what happens in an emergency when if you, you, you're laid off or something happens and you have no savings. And so my point is, is like, we're kind of all guilty of it. Like we're kind of all like into the instant gratification and we don't like to suffer for the good of the long term. So I think it's, again, it's a skill that, and, and I believe change starts at home, that if we're looking for cultural shifts to happen, I think we yeah. as individuals have to take responsibility for making good decisions for the long term. And what you'll start to see is that will filter into everything in our society. I believe change starts at home. It's not this big systemic thing that we just demand change. It's human beings. So yeah, I, I, and like I said, let's emulate the ones who do it right. And let's copy some of the things they do. We don't have to reinvent the wheel. Literally copy some of the things that the best companies are doing. Mm. You know, a lot of people think, however, that if we do start consuming less and if we if the focus isn't on kind of infinite growth, that that's actually going to fundamentally come into conflict with this capitalist system yeah. that we've built. And so a lot of people are talking about stakeholder capitalism yeah. now, where we where we consider not just our shareholders, but we consider our employees yeah. and the people in our supply chains and our customers and wider society. How do you see this all playing out as companies say they're considering more stakeholders, but ultimately it's Wall Street and the city in London that are measuring their, their success based on quarterly growth. Correct. So capitalism as a system actually thinks about the customer first. It's a relatively new experience where we prioritize the shareholder. That's only been popularized since the late 1970s. The 80s and 90s, the boom years of the 80s and 90s, and the policies uh, from governments in the 80s and 90s and the, and the business theories that were proposed by people like Jack Welch, the, the CEO of GE at the time, that created the system that we live in now. Capitalism as a system is, is quite healthy. We broke capitalism. So it's, it's like the form of capitalism that we have now is not the capitalism that Adam Smith wrote about. It's not the capitalism that, that transformed many of our, of, of our nations and increased the quality of product, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, and drove innovation, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. The form of capitalism we have now is, is perpetrated by a, a, people, a few people at the top um, who, who profit most from the hard labor of everybody else. The stock market was a means for the average person to enjoy in some of the wealth of the nation. That, that was the intention of the stock market, that we can all get involved. Unfortunately, in this modern day, it's predominantly used by a small percentage to, engro- it, 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 to, to enrich themselves. And, and we start to see the middle class dropping out of the stock market. And so we have to, I think we do have to change the way business is organized. We have to stop predominantly incentivizing CEOs solely on on the price of the equity, because then they're only going to care about the price of the equity rather than the quality of of the company. And I think we need to move away from an external shareholder being the priority. The external shareholder will benefit when we take care of our employees, take care of our customers, take care of our community. The company does well, that benefits the shareholder. And you look at all the companies that follow that, like Patagonia, but the companies that prioritize uh, in those order, they tend to outperform their competition over the long term. That's the great irony. But again, it doesn't fit neatly into a quarterly or annual time frame. And basically what we have is, and, and every, every senior executive of every public company knows this. It's a big open secret. They all, think, they all think the city and they all think Wall Street's a big joke. They all know that the city and Wall Street put pressure on them to make decisions that they know are bad for their companies and force them to make decisions sorry, make decisions that they know are bad and avoid making decisions that they know are good. They, they know it. It's a big open secret. They all talk about it. And yet they do what some analyst tells them to do. So they're running their companies to help the analysts get their bonus. So capitalism as a, as a philosophy isn't the issue. It's the manner in which we do capitalism today. We have bastardized capitalism. We have broken capitalism. And we need to go back to a form of capitalism where we prioritize employees and customers. Well, that seems like a very appropriate note to end on. Uh, I could have asked you a lot more questions, but we've, we've run out of time. Thank you so much, Simon, for your thoughts and your insights on a wide range of questions. The BOF podcast is edited and produced by Venetia Van Horn Alcama, Kate Varshan, and Kevin Bobby Blanco in the BOF studio team. You know that's the sound of another sale on your online Shopify store. But did you know Shopify powers selling in person, too? That's right. Shopify is the sound of selling everywhere. Online, in-store, on social media, and beyond. 
Shopify POS is your command center for your retail store. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify has everything you need to sell in person. With Shopify, you get a powerhouse selling partner that effortlessly unites your in-person and online sales into one source of truth. Track every sale across your business in one place and know exactly what's in stock. Shopify helps you drive store traffic with plug-and-play tools built for marketing campaigns from TikTok to Instagram and beyond. Plus, Shopify's award-winning 24-7 help is there to support your success every step of the way. Do retail right with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash BOF, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash BOF to take your retail business to the next level today. Shopify.com slash BOF. Have you ever owned something that inspired you to up your game? For me, I got a chef grade range recently and now I'm cooking new things every single night. Seriously, no cuisine is off limits. The point is, when we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. I can picture myself with a car full of groceries, cruising down the highway, soaking up the sun with the available dynamic sky panorama glass roof. Ah, pure bliss. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX. Luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer.